would please turn your Bibles to Second uh, Corinthians. You're looking at the first 11 verses. You've actually done the first two. I think it's time to slow down a little bit. I have a word of prayer and we'll read the first 11 verses. And then we'll begin this day to look at the person of comfort. Um, this is a fascinating text. So let's have some prayer and then uh, read the first 11 verses. Father, um, it is amazing grace. And Father, as we have sung, how can it be? And yet, Lord, uh, it is. We bear testimony. Our lives changed in the twinkling of an eye. Father, we have been redeemed. Father, I, I fear that we sometimes take this for granted. And Father, I, I fear that uh, perhaps it becomes something of not that important. And yet, Father, as you have prodded me, and Father, as you have shown me in this text, the amazing love. How can it be? Father, as we read your word, please, please let us be sensitive. Help us to have ears to hear. Father, help us to have eyes to see as we look at the God of all comfort, the Father of all mercy. It is to your glory. It is to your praise. In Christ's name, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which is effective in the patient enduring of the same suffering which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded knowing that you are sharers of our suffering so also you are sharers of our comfort. We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we could not trust ourselves, but in God who raises the dead who delivered us from so great a peril of death 
will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope and He will yet deliver us. You also joining and helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. This text is just mind-boggling, to be honest with you. Um, Comfort in trouble is what I've kind of laid it out as a format to move it through. But I think what happens at times, we misunderstand what Paul means. Okay, because uh, I, you, I could take this room and what you would call an affliction, I may not call an affliction. Uh, I may have a trial that you would say, that's really not that big a deal. I don't understand why he seems to be burdened by it. And yet in the middle of this, the Apostle Paul is saying, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction. Um, It was beyond our strength. We despaired of life. Okay, now I want you to start rolling that thing around in your head. I want you to think about that. What have you been hit with that you would despair of life? I remember a very dear brother of mine, of ours, uh, who is in glory now. And he was talking about when he was diagnosed with cancer, had uh, an aggressive form of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And um, they, you know, as soon as he was diagnosed, they immediately wanted to start hitting him with chemotherapy and all the rest of it. And he took it and he remembers laying in his hospital bed because the chemotherapy was life-threatening to him. It was so strong and so massive. And he said that he was laying in his, his hospital bed and his whole mouth and throat were full of sores. Okay, that it hurt to breathe in air. And, and let alone swallow. All right. And, and he would lay there and his body would go from chills to fever and then chills to fever. And he would call upon the Psalms in his memory and try to comfort him. And he said one night in his anguish, he was laying there and he says, Father, I know the accuser of the brethren, the Satan the devil who attacks us. But Father, be merciful for, to him and do not give him this chemotherapy. <laughs> now that there's anguish, brothers. I don't care how you cut that thing. That there going to wear you out. And, and there are times that we will step into an area or a situation that maybe even at the moment it just seems overwhelming. But do we really understand what the Apostle Paul is talking about here? See, if you read this letter, there's an underlying current in there that Paul's apostolic authority was being challenged. 
Okay. Uh, his, he literally has in here underneath a defense of his integrity. All right. And, and what is amazing about the anguish of the apostle Paul in this text is he's not defending or he's not challenging this on the basis of his own popularity. He's not doing it on the basis of his own personal gain. He's not even doing it because he wants prominence. He's doing it because of his overwhelming desire and passion for the protection of the church. When we were asked to be involved in Russia, Yuri Sipko had come to us and he says, I need help. With the fall of socialism, there's this huge vacuum and everything is rushing in. And we would like you to help us to put a fence around the church of sound doctrine so that she may be protected. We miss that today, brothers and sisters. We will linger. We will languish. Paul understood that there needed to be a protection of truth. That's what protects the church. You know, I heard a pastor one time tell me that the church in America today has a spiritual case of AIDS. Okay, AIDS is a, an inability for your immune system to fight off anything. It does not have the ability to fight off a disease. And, and when I look at the body of Christ today, I have to agree with that. You know, I was doing a roundtable question and answer on Wednesday. And um, one of the things that I... Spiritual gifts came up. And people were discussing, you know, how, how do you see people moving into full-time ministry and, or, or paid ministry and, and things like that? How do you spot that? And um, my comment was kind of, you know, how I am. Um, one of the spiritual gifts that nobody wants to talk about is the spiritual gift of discernment. Um, if, if you're going to be in a teaching position, if you were going to be in a leadership position, you had better have some discernment. And, 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 and yet that's a supernatural ability. And, 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 and I see this missing today because I don't see the protection for the church. I, I don't see the protection of, of, of truth. And, and, and it's in this letter, these 13 chapters, it's behind the scenes because there is a strong in the writing of this letter and, and a, a growing assault on the Apostle Paul. It is picking up steam. There was an effort in the Corinthian church to destroy his credibility. See, they wanted uh, to destroy. See, if you destroy the teacher's credibility, then you can destroy the message. What do you see today? It hasn't really changed. I mean, let's be realistic. Some of them out there are not credible. <laughs> okay, and I don't listen to their message. But there are men out there who are on the cutting edge of the war against Satan and they will always attack the messenger. See, 
false teachers will attack the messenger so that they can remove truth. When you remove truth, you have a vacuum and they are more than joyous to fill it. That was what was happening in Corinth. When you read here, I do not want you to be unaware of my affliction. Yeah, he had just been, a a riot had erupted in Ephesus, but he had had ongoing correspondence with Corinth and he had not heard how they were responding back from Titus. See, let me tear down the messenger and I can cause a vacuum in that group. And if I cause a vacuum in that group, then they will be susceptible to what I bring in. See, and if you're truly honest with yourself, a cursory reading of anything on the Apostle Paul, you will find that he was attacked at every corner. I mean, even in the church in Ephesus, those of you who are coming on Wednesday nights, he's leaving Timothy where? In Ephesus. To teach these teachers to quit being legalists and to quit tearing down what he has already done in Ephesus. He was three years in Ephesus. Over and over and over, there is an attack on the messenger. When the messenger is truly bringing forth truth, the messengers of Satan will pinpoint in on that and they'll go right after it. Why? Because if I can tear his credibility down, if I can tear his integrity down, then I can destroy the message. And then I can claim my credentials. And what do we see today? You see that all over the place. Now listen, there's some out there that are not credible, but those are easy to spot. But when you see the attack that comes against true men of God, then you have to ask yourself serious questions. This is part of what Paul's talking about in this affliction. See, in chapter 12, verse 7, he says these are messengers of Satan. Satan. Demonic message to confuse Listen, I asked you a question several, it's been, I guess it's been several years ago, hasn't it? When we taught on ignorance of spiritual gifts, right? All right. The apostle Paul says, I do not want you to be what? Ignorant of spiritual gifts. My question to you was, is there ignorance of spiritual gifts? Not only is there ignorance, there is confusion. Now then, do we serve a God of confusion? Do we serve a God of ignorance? Then what has happened? It is right in and it is eyeball deep all around you. And it hasn't changed. And that's what Paul is struggling with here. And he's saying, you know what? I don't want you to be about. I I don't want you to be concerned. I don't want you to be confused with error. Okay, because that is what Satan does in the body of Christ. That's where he attacks. He isn't hanging. I, people say, well, he's, going, he's trying to get in through the UN. The UN? Are you nuts? There is only one adversary to Satan in the world. 
And that is the true church. That is it. It ain't the UN. It isn't a government. He could care less about those. He is looking for men and women who stand firm on the word of God and they are the bullseye that he shoots at. And he will attack them. Why? Because if I can discredit them, I have discredited their message and I can sow confusion and I can sow error and I win. Man, I just don't understand why we don't see this. It's lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life. I mean, if you're playing football and the opposition runs three plays, at some point you would think you'd be able to stop it. And yet, we have bought the confusion, we have bought the error, and when you have a man or a woman of God who stands up and stands firm on truth, then guess what happens? They are attacked. This was the concern of the Apostle Paul. This is what was happening in the church in Corinth. Now listen, this is one letter of four. There was one letter, correspondence that he wrote. They responded to him. In a letter, if in 1 Corinthians, remember chapter 7, verse 1, concerning the things in which you have wrote. He had already confronted them. He had heard from the house of Chloe that, hey, there's some problems here. We have immorality. We have this sin that is festering. We have the impact of this. Our society is having a greater impact on us than we are on our society. And that's what Paul was, was going on. And it had gotten back to the apostle Paul. And Paul said, you know what? You've got to confront it. It wasn't the heartache of Paul was not that there was sin in the church. The heartache of Paul is they weren't dealing with it. That's the heartache. Listen, for me to think that I can stand up here and you guys are all sinless, one of us is a fool. Okay? But the thing is, is when it becomes apparent, guess what? Let's deal with it. Let's walk together and overcome in victory in Christ. That's what we do. The hospital or the the church is not a place for perfect people. The church is a place for people who know they're not perfect. I'm not healthy. I need help. I need the association of the saints. That's what the church is for. And that's what the Apostle Paul understood. He knew that. Let's just take care of this. And his heartache in the first one was with anguish and tears. He says he wrote that first letter. Okay? But that's after he'd already confronted him. But then he wrote another letter. And I believe that the third letter that he wrote was because he had been in Ephesus and he got tired of hearing this and he made a quick dash over to Corinth and he saw what was happening. See, when you don't deal with sin, then you become ripe for false teaching. And the false teachers were there. And he saw what they did. And when he got back to Ephesus, he sent them what is called the severe letter. All right. And Titus had carried it back. All right. Then there was a riot had broke out in Ephesus. And when he broke, this riot broke out, he got out of Ephesus and was wondering what in the world just happened. 
And I wonder how the Corinthians have responded to this severe letter. And he went to Troas and he was in such anguish and such affliction, such heartache that a door for the gospel was opened in Troas and yet he was so unsettled he couldn't even serve. And he went on into Macedonia, Philippi probably. And there he runs into Titus and guess what Titus tells him? The majority has repented. And then he writes what you and I have in front of us today is the second Corinthians. And this is a very personal letter because he is happy about it. But Paul ain't stupid. The majority have changed course and are not listening to the false. But you know what he knows? The false ain't gone. You have an unrelenting foe, brothers and sisters. You can have the victory. He don't go away. He'll lay there. And he'll wait. And that's why you have him writing this. See, and, and, and there's a heartbreak that goes on in it. See, the false will assault. I mean, they're literally saying, you know what? Paul's... Paul's a big shot when he ain't around, but he ain't such a big shot when he's face to face with you. You've already seen that text. First Corinthians was written out of affliction of the anguish and of tears. But you know what? That's not the tone in second Corinthians. And it's like I said, He's, he's coming off the rebound of what is called the severe letter. It's not an inspired letter. I bet it's a dandy though. I bet you, you put your P's and your Q's and dot your I's on that one. Okay. He understood that what God had called him to had literally put a big old target on Paul. He knew that. You know, I've had people ask me, would you ever encourage your boys to go into the pastorate? And I'd said, never. I wouldn't encourage anybody to do this. Why? Because you have no idea of the bullseye that is put on you. I mean, if you're willing to do it the way God does it, you are a target. And what I have come to find out, there's not really that many targets to shoot at. So you can get the whole weight. All right, but it's kind of fun because you learn dependence. <laughs> All right. And at every point, the Apostle Paul was attacked. And, and, and you see that. And it's an underlying theme that you'll see throughout most of this letter. Um, you, you, this affliction that he speaks of is, is part of the corruption of the church. It is part of the corruption of the message. Um, and, and I'll be honest with you. One of the things that I have learned from my study of Scripture and from my walk with my king is that Satan picks his targets well. He picks them well. 
And um, this, this, this letter is written um, with heartbreak in it. This letter is written with anguish in this affliction. I mean, in chapter 11, he goes through and he gives you that list. You know, I've been shipwrecked and I have been beaten and I have been stoned. I have I've been in fear for my life in the country and in the city. My countrymen hate me. My uh, the Gentiles hate me and everybody hates me. And then he ends it with this. And my daily concern, this pressure, this trouble, this anguish that I have for the church. I mean, so when you think about affliction, it can be physical. It, it, it can be emotional. Okay, and it is always spiritual. And yet in, in this, he starts it out in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a joy that is coming out that even under this immense pressure, he is being comforted. And, and, it, and it's something that you and I need to grab a hold of. Some of the things that you think that are affliction to you, are they really? <laughs> or are they just something that you... Some, listen, there are times that I do some boneheaded things. All right? And I have to suffer the consequences of my boneheaded thing. All right? I wouldn't call that an affliction. I'd call that consequences of a boneheaded thing. Okay, and I don't lose sleep over it. I don't have tears over it. I just sit there and go, gee, me, cricket. I remember one time that um, I had started my Jeep, and 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 I knew the emergency brake on it wasn't wasn't really that strong. But I pushed the brake on and had it out there as warming up. If you don't know anything about Jeeps, they're not really noted for having great heaters in it. And so, you know, I, I just sat there and 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 I started up and I go back in the house and and then I. I Get ready to go. I think I was even going to church. I get ready to go to church, and I walked outside, and my jeep is gone. And I thought, "Ah, where's my jeep?" Okay, immediately affliction. I turn around and look, and I've got a big old section of fence tore out where it rolled through the fence. And it's sitting down in the pasture, just running away, getting warm. And you just sit there and look at it and go, "Great." I don't know if you've ever tried to pull out wooden posts in the winter. It's one of the most joyous things you can ever do. It it grows your faith, your spiritual maturity. It does all kinds of things. All right? Um, God said, put a block under the tire. Why? <laughs> Fence will stop it. <laughs> there are things that we do that will bring us anguish that ain't a God. God just sits there and goes, watch this. That's not what Paul is dealing with. We have physical things that will happen that will bring us anguish, that will bring us affliction, will bring us turmoil. We have mental things that will do the same. We have emotional things that will bring stress to us. And you see the Apostle Paul dealing with, this letter is dealing with the heart of a a heart of a, a man of God. Okay? But Paul had heard that a majority had turned 
had received this severe letter. Now, now you have to understand that severe letter would have been the third that we know of. He had one that he wrote to confront the sin in the church. All right. And, and then they sent him a letter back and had some questions. And he wrote what you have as first Corinthians. All right. But he had three years that he was in Ephesus pastoring and what he did in those three years, somewhere in there, he took a trip over to Corinth and it was awful. It broke his heart. The false, the false teachers literally accused him to his face of, of, of selling a gospel of grace for sexual favors. And, and what broke Paul's heart was not the fact that false teachers were attacking his integrity. The problem was nobody in the church stood up to defend him. And so the apostle went back and he wrote a letter we do not have called the severe letter. And in doing that, he's laid out this foundation that says, what do we do? Then he finds out from Titus after a riot that guess what? A majority has changed. A majority. And, and, and what, when I think about repentance, I have to use Linsky's term on it. It's a sorrow according to the will of God. Okay, that's a good definition. Because when the Word of God pierces you, you can become callous to it, or you can shoot the messenger, or you can have a sorrow according to the will of God. And so he writes, and there's joy in this. Blessed is God. That is joyous. That is praising. That is thanksgiving. And yet he understands. You know what? When you get into the ministry, when does the battle stop? When my faith becomes sight. When my faith becomes sight. Listen, here's a guy who's paying the price for proclaiming the gospel. Okay? And here's how he says it. Blessed be God to be well spoken of. That's what it means to bless. Well spoken of. You won't say anything derogatory in a blessing. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to stop right there. Okay? Paul is basically saying, my brothers and my sisters in Corinth, my brothers and my sisters who will read this through the course of history, while the attack is still coming, God is still comforting. You ever thought about that? Too many times when we are in the middle of battle, in the middle of being attacked, what do we focus on? The attack. And you're missing the God of comfort. In the weeks to come, we will deal with what is comfort because I bet you that as many people as I have here, comfort will have a different definition for each of you. So comfort in this trouble. 
And we're looking at the person of comfort. And if you think about it, blessed means to be well spoken of. That I, and then he identifies. Well spoken of who? God. Okay. Now the question it's writing of first, or of the Corinthian letters would be, well, what God is he blessing? I mean, they had the temple of Aphrodite's. It could have been Aphrodite's he's blessing. Well, it's easy. It is the one who is the God and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the one I'm blessing. The one who is known as Father of mercy and the God of all comfort. That's the one I'm blessing. We'll deal with Father of mercies and comfort next week. But this week, I want to look at the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, in the Old Testament, you would see this normally in a synagogue. They would start out a benediction with, Blessed be the God and Father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay? Uh, See, that's how God was identified. By those who represent Him. Alright? By by those through whom God spoke. Blessed is that God. Alright? In the New Testament, it is blessed is the God and Father of Jesus Christ our Lord. Alright? See, if you remember Hebrews, it says God's once spoke through the fathers and the prophets, but in these last days He has... Spoken through His Son, Hebrews chapter 1. See, and let's be realistic, and let's be honest, and let's be frank. His Son is different than the fathers and the prophets. A little bit. Okay? Hebrews tells us His Son is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. Yeah, that'd be a little different. Just a tad. See, this is the God who revealed. This is the God incarnate of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the one who is blessed that the comfort's coming from. Listen, whatever God is, His Son is only equal in nature. That's different than the fathers and the prophets. All right, I'm going to show you this because (laughs) this is funny. And uh, go over to the Gospel of John. Chapter, we'll start in chapter 1, verse 18. <clears throat> no one has seen God at any time. That's what John 1.18 says. The only begotten of God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. All right? Alright, what he's saying there is he is revealed. You can't see God, but when you see Christ, guess what? You see God. Right? Go, wow, are you sure? Yeah, sure. You know, I've actually had people tell me, you know, 
Nowhere in the Bible does Jesus claim to be God. Which one are you reading? You need to get out of the maps. Because <laughs> maps ain't helping you. Okay, chapter 14, verse 9. This is the upper room. He's getting ready to be executed, arrested and executed. He's speaking to the disciples. And Jesus says to him, um, Philip, Philip, I, I like Philip, but here's what Philip says, and I'd have probably done the same thing. Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it'll be enough for us. Okay, <laughs> Philip, hey, Jesus, show us God, and it'll be cool. We'll believe then. Okay, here's what Jesus' reply is. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now, I read that text and then someone will come to me and say, well, you know, he never claims to be God. That's like, well, who wrote 2 Corinthians? Timothy. <laughs> That's what it said. Oh, wait, no. Timothy was with him. But I just read that and you go, what? Well, but he doesn't claim. No, what he's saying is, if you've seen me, I am the exact representation of God. I am the radiance of God. Remember on the Mount of the Transfiguration? Let's build a temple here. Why? Did you see that? <laughs> he pulled back his humanity and showed his glory and Peter says, uh-oh. You know, and Peter did the same thing we'd have done. <laughs> I think we'll build an altar now. Huh? <laughs> yeah, you know. He's hanging out with Elijah and Moses. They, they all said, did you hear the voices? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Are you getting the note here? I need a memo. No, it's all clear. John's Gospel, chapter 5. Verse 17. This is what he says. He says to them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Now listen, he's talking to the Jewish leaders here, and it's in regards to the Sabbath. Okay, because the, the Jewish leadership, uh, spiritual leaders were cranky that Jesus was doing things on the Sabbath. These were but my father is working on the Sabbath. And basically what he's saying is God can do whatever he wants to do on the Sabbath. So can I. You know what that means, right? <laughs> they plotted to kill him. Why? For this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because, verse 18, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his Father and making himself what? Equal with God. You know what that means? Jesus claimed to be God. Okay? You see, that's amazing. Somebody can actually say, tell me. I know Jesus never claimed to be God. You know what? That's weird because the Jewish leaders sure thought he did. 
Making himself equal to God. Listen, I want to share with you something. That is the heart and soul of Christianity. Did you know that the Muslims believe in Jesus? But they put him on the same level as Moses and of Muhammad. He is a prophet. And they say that we have corrupted it. Blessed be the God. Okay? Not of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the one who was revealed in the Christ. Blessed be that God. That's the God who's comforting me. That God. In John 17, the high priestly prayer uh, of, of Jesus Christ. Th- this here, brothers and sisters, if you really want the Lord's prayer, <laughs> this would be the Lord's prayer. Okay. And one of the, the texts that gets overlooked in this is um, Jesus has given them explanation of what's about to happen and that he needs to leave and he's going to send a comforter and here's the Holy Spirit and this, that, and the other and get ready because here it's going to go and, and we're getting ready to go through a real long stretch of ugly. Okay, and that's what he tells them. And then <clears throat> he's instituted what you and I have just celebrated as the Lord's table. And he spoke these things, verse 1 of 17 says, he spoke these things lifting his eyes to heaven. Now that's an amazing thing for me. You know why? How many times do you pray you look up to God? Most of the time when we pray, what do we do? Bow. And yet Jesus is going to speak to his father and he does what? He looks up. But he's our father, isn't he? But for some reason, we always go like this. Okay, and Jesus looked up. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still not comfortable with going, hey, Lord. Um, God the Father. But look what he says in verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He looks up to heaven. He says, reestablish the face-to-face glory that we used to have before there even was existence. That's God the Father. That's the Father that He's talking about. That's the one that brings me comfort in my affliction when there's false teachers attacking me, when they're attacking my integrity, when they're attacking my message, when they're attacking my authority. I want the one who's face to face with Jesus and the glory of the oneness that existed before there was even creation. That one there. Comfort. Comfort. See, God revealed in Christ. You see it. God the Father. You see it in Ephesians 1, 3. In 2 John 3. God revealed Himself in the person of Christ. And let me tell you something. There's a little footnote you can throw out here. Hang on to it. If you don't believe that, no matter what else you believe, you cannot be a Christian. Please understand that. Jesus is God, period. Okay? But you know what is more in this text? He says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, do you understand that phrasing right there? I want you to think about this for a second. This is this one here get make you scratch your your brain from the inside out. 
okay, if it ever really itched. It will. But it is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. What? How does that work? How, how can God have a God? You ever thought about that? I don't know. You guys, yeah, we are going to figure it out, Terry. <laughs> That's good. Cause I couldn't figure that out. That kind of caused me to scratch my head. In John's Gospel, chapter 20, verse 17. <clears throat> this is after the resurrection. Jesus <clears throat> speaking to Mary. Jesus says to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. How does that? How does that work? On the cross, what did he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, wait a minute. I thought he was God. That'd be like, how did I forsake me? Okay, it's easy. In his deity, he is equal to God. Okay, if you have seen the Son, you have seen the Father. He is equal. Okay, in His humanity, He is submitted to God. You get that? I don't know. It's just like a glove, doesn't it? In His incarnation, He is God, but in His incarnation, He is also 100% man. Listen, as a man, he must submit himself fully to God. Let me tell you something. Every human being who's ever been born, who will ever be born, will ultimately fully submit to God. Period. I don't care who they are. I don't even care if they don't believe in him. They're still going to submit to him. I, it doesn't, you know, well, I'm an agnostic or I'm an a, I don't care. There's going to come a time and you will submit. Every man, every creature will submit. Every tongue will confess. When Jesus was a man, guess what? He submitted to God, even though he is God. That's amazing. Isn't that amazing? That ought to cause you to just, I don't know what it caused me to just scratch my brain from the inside out. That made my brain itch. I'm just sitting there going, whoa. Jesus in his submission comes down and takes the form of a servant. In absolute obedience to God. In the garden, if at all possible, do what? Take that cup from me. Why? He's a man. You won't go do this? 
I don't want to go do this. Take this cup. But your will be done. He even restricted divine knowledge. He has the knowledge that God has. But he says, the hour no man knows. Not even the Son of Man. He restricted himself in the role of servant that he gave up that knowledge. That's amazing. But see, he had to do that to redeem us. And when you read the Apostle Paul here, blessed be the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you just sit there and go, man, in that little phrase, what has he just done? He has shown the absolute deity and humility of the Lord Jesus Christ in a little bitty phrase. And I get people say, well, we need to learn to share the gospel. Oh, it's right there. Gee, many crickets. Well, I'm going to have to go to school. What? Oh, let me guess. Who wrote 2 Corinthians? He submitted himself absolutely and totally to taking on the form of a servant. And yet he is the one who created it all. See, God... Who he is became his God. And he submitted to his God. Listen, I got news for you. Every man, woman, or child born or ever going to be born will submit to God. They may not like it, but they're going to submit. Okay? And yet Jesus Christ is still his equal. God's equal. See, now if you go back to your Corinthian text, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, and and just the God and Father is His humanity and His deity of Christ. And they're brought together in one statement. But then, I mean, just look at it what He says next. Lord, Kyrios, Jesus, Christos, what is that? What is he saying? <laughs> He's just giving you the gospel. Lord is his deity. Curios, deity, royalty, sovereignty. That's what he says. He is all. You know, it's, it's like I, I hear people saying, well, you know, you get saved. Jesus is your savior. And then you cruise along and you get to read your Bible and you have some fun. And then you make him Lord of your life. Let me tell you something. He is Lord whether you make him or not. If you're making him Lord, then you become sovereign. And that just really don't fit. And I don't care how you act, it still don't fit. So you have Lord, then you have Jesus, who is, is the same phrase we get Joshua from, Ishua. Okay, and what does it mean? The same as people. So you have ruler, Savior, Christ is the anointed, Messiah. Is anointed of God. I mean, I can say Lord Jesus Christ and just gave you the gospel. 
There is no other name on which you may be saved. Well, what is that name? Oh, gee. Lord Jesus Christ. Why? You know, and, and, and I've, I've heard this before, that there's an infinite number of ways to come to Jesus. There's one to God. There's not an infinite number of ways to God. All right, but see, I mean, you have the deity of Christ laid out in the fact that he is the God and father of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is his deity, his humanity, his sovereignty, his all power, his immutability and his servanthood because he became a man. And then in his name, Lord is sovereignty. His rule, his authority, Jesus, Ishua, is, he will save his people. That's the sacrifice of his life. Christos, which is the anointed of God. Now you understand why Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see why he starts off this letter with joy and comfort? Have you ever thought about it? When I, I, I get people say, you know, well, I remember, I think it was Billy Graham made a statement one time that in the name of Christ or in the name of Jesus, you hang that on the end of your prayer because if you don't do that, it's like mailing a letter without a stamp. Okay? Um, anyone who calls upon the name shall be saved. Uh, well, I work construction, and most of the people on a construction site call on the name of Jesus <laughs> at different points. Um, and I'm convinced they're not saved. Many are not saved. Okay, Because what I just gave you is, if you're going to call on the name of Jesus, then you have to call on what I just gave you. He and the Father are one, and yet He became a servant to take your place so that He would set a, an example of serving the one true living God that you are to follow. And He is sovereign. He is Savior. And He is anointed by God. Okay, so when it says... I call on the name of Jesus for salvation. You have to call on all of that. Do you get that? We understand that. You know, and I get into trouble with, well, you're challenging my salvation. Yes, he does not look like Lord in your life. He does not look like sovereign in your life. And now when you pray, I want you to think about this. Change your prayer and think about it from this perspective. I pray in the name of Jesus. That means that what I have just prayed, I know emphatically Jesus wants this to happen. Boy, my prayers just got small. Because I'm praying in the name of the Lord. I mean, it's, it's so amazing. I can just take that phrase right there. I don't even have to take the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. I can just say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in that little benediction, I have the whole gospel. 
It just, whoop, right there it is. That Paul, he's good, isn't he? He should have been like a writer. But he also adds, this God that I am blessing and I have been blessed by, I have been comforted by in all of my affliction, He is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And we will look at that next week. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your Gospel. Thank You for the amazing things that You do. Father, when this comes to me and You help me to rest in these assurances, Father, I pray that each of us that is here today and has looked at Your Word, has heard Your Word, Father, will understand the greatest thing in our lives is our salvation. And Father, as You set our Savior to be a servant, Father, may that be our heart. May that be our attitudes. May that be our passion. And yet, Father, may we understand that it is You who is the Father of mercy and the God of all comfort. And that, Father, You care for us in ways we don't even understand. Father, You loved us and love us in ways that we don't understand. And there is nothing in creation that can separate us from You. Thank You, Father. Thank You so much. To Your glory and to Your praise. Amen.